0: Thank you for being with us today, and uh, I want you to look around at uh, the set of what's up front here so that you can be distracted now, not later, because when I, you know, if, on the off chance that I might go long or something, I don't want you to get distracted by all the other things. Uh, open your Bible, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we are going to uh, be reading, starting in verse 7, and going all the way through to the end of the chapter. And uh, that's a a bold endeavor, I know, but uh, we will see uh, if we can get through that today. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we read this chapter. We think about its contents. We think about what caused um, these words that we read today, and we're struck with our own sense of guilt. We're struck with our own falling short of your glory, our own sin. We're struck with the fact that we have followed suit, that we could be reading about us in this chapter and not about our first parents. And so it's with a bit of heaviness that we acknowledge our sin, that, that we would not have done any better than Adam and Eve, and we have not done any better than Adam and Eve. We have our own sin. And so we begin our service today aware of that fact. We confess it to you And, Father, we look for hope in this passage, this passage that is full of dark words and, and uh, difficult sayings. But we seek for hope that there might be redemption. And, Father, we know the story. We know how this ends. We know that uh, the book does not end in Genesis 3. We know that it points forward to Jesus. And, and so when we bring our sins and we confess them to You, we look for forgiveness in Christ And we rejoice that You have sent Him to pay the penalty for our sin. And so we confess our sin. We find forgiveness in Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that even as we interact with Your Word this morning, that You would do Your work in our hearts. Not just that we're thinking about ancient history. We're thinking about our lives. And so we pray that you would minister to us from your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage today is, uh, of course, a a relatively dark one, and we've entitled this message, What Comes After Sin? Everything leading up to this moment has been, uh, at least leading up to this chapter, has been glorious and has been a highlight of God's creative work and all that He's done and Uh, how He has blessed man and how He's blessed this creation and and all of that. And in the the context of that, in this garden where uh, Adam and Eve were placed, uh, we read this instruction given back in chapter 2. In verse 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "'You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat.'" For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so that was the the paradise, and that was the instruction given to the man in that paradise. And the warning given that if if you break this instruction, if you break this command, if you disobey, the result will be death. And so we know in uh, reading the rest of Scripture, and we know and observing our own lives that there is death. It's a part of our experience in a way that, uh, that is painful. And so, when we come to our passage today and we come to the sin that we talked about last week, the question arises for us, what can be done once sin has entered the picture? And that's not just a question for the distant past, is it? The question is for us as well, what can be done for us, in our lives, once sin has entered in? And that's the question we will be discussing today. And so as we work through this uh, large section, I want us to be very conscious to put ourselves in the story, to understand uh, the story in a personal way, not just out there, not just objective. I think sometimes we can... Uh, study Scripture, we can read Scripture, we can even listen to sermons, and we can keep it out there. And it's something that we can, we can try to understand, distant from us and removed. It's out there. But Scripture is telling us true things about out there, but it's also communicating right here to us. And so today I want us to be very conscious to place ourselves in the story that we're not just reading about two other people, but we recognize ourselves in this story as well, that we are descendants of this couple, and we have inherited uh, the, the, the results of their actions, and we have followed suit in our own lives. We've inherited those problems, and we've done many of the same things, and so we want to see this morning if we can identify the effects of this story in our own lives. Okay, So that's, that's our deal as we start into this. And when we look at sin, we talked last week and the week before about this previous passage and, and how sin came into the picture. And today we want to talk about kind of the uh, what comes next, what, what happens after this. And I want to... Uh, see the three basic categories of events that happen right here. First of all, we see that uh, confession is essential. What happens when sin comes in? Well, confession is essential. And we see this right off the bat when we look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves. If you If you pause right there and just think for a moment about the tragedy of this, that here God who has made them, the one they know as Father, the one who has blessed them, the one who has given them every good thing, the one they have this perfect relationship with, the one that they should run to and want to hug, want to be with. Instead, they hear the sound of Him coming, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden you see right off the bat we see sinners avoiding God and that continues doesn't it as we read about this as we read these words we can easily imagine what it was like for them when they heard God coming it's tragic but we can easily imagine it because when we've sinned we know that being in God's presence is not our first desire And so for these two who had enjoyed perfect fellowship with God, now they're aware of their sin. And when they hear Him coming, their awareness of their sin increases. And so they run and they hide. They avoid God out of fear, which is something new to them, something that's a result of their sin. And so they want to hide. Well, if we think rationally for just a moment, can you hide from God? Where are you going to go? There are psalms written about this, that you're not going to hide from God. He is everywhere present. And so whether you go someplace high, you go someplace low, you go someplace hot or cold or far away or across the water or anywhere, there is God. You can't run away, and surely they know that. And surely we know that when we try to avoid God, when we have sin in our lives. The fact is we can't run away, and we can't hide Sin, by its very nature, kind of overrides reason, doesn't it? It doesn't make sense at all. And yet that's exactly what they do. And so sinners, right off the bat, avoid God when He shows up. And just an observation right here, you will see this theme continued throughout the rest of Scripture that, as Paul will conclude, quoting from the Old Testament, he'll conclude in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks for God. That man runs from God. Sinful man runs from God. And what we see playing out in a very physical and obvious and kind of ridiculous way plays out even today. Sinners run from God. Sinful man continues to think that he can, that he can get away from God. And so sinners avoid God. And second of all, uh, these sinners, they, they 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 kind of prevaricate, they kind of come up with excuses, don't they? We see, uh, first of all, this this man's confession is what we see in in, uh, verses 9 through 12. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, if ever there was a rhetorical question, this is it. All right, God is not seeking, you know, I've been looking for you, Adam, I can't find you anywhere, I don't know. It's a rhetorical question. Where, Where are you? And the answer, of course, Adam does answer the question, but the answer ought to be, I am before you, God. That's what it ought to be. But instead, verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Right, so he runs off and, and he hides, and now he's, he's answering God in God's rhetorical question. Why, why would God ask this rhetorical question? It's not so he can learn information. He's, he's, he's seeking a confession from Adam. He wants Adam to own up to what he's done. Adam, I, I've shown up uh, like I have perhaps in the past, and it's the cool of the day, the time for us to walk together. I'm here. Where are you? Why aren't, why aren't you here like you've been before? He, he wants Adam to think about that. He wants Adam to deal with his own guilt, to confess his own sin. But instead, we see Adam saying, well, I heard you coming, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I want to notice in passing there are two new concepts that have arisen that weren't there before sin. And that's this kind of fear that would cause them to run away from God, and the second is shame. They were naked before the fall, and it wasn't a problem. And now they're ashamed. They're ashamed of who they are. They're ashamed of being exposed. There's there's something different. Now they they want to hide. So they have this fear and want to run from God, and they have this shame. They want to hide themselves from one another and and from God. So he says, I was naked, and and I was afraid, and so I hid myself. In verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Something's changed, Adam. Your nakedness isn't what changed. Something else changed. It's your own heart. Something else has changed. He's trying to get Adam to recognize this. He's trying to get Adam to own up to this, to recognize what has happened in his own heart. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So now God gets right to it. You see, Adam had tried to uh, put off answering this question as long as he could. Well, it was this, and well, it was that, and I was, you know, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I ran and I hid, and that's not really the point, is it? Point is, did did you eat of that tree? I, I gave you one instruction not to do. One prohibition. Did you eat of that tree which I commanded you not to eat? Look at Adam's response in verse 12. The man said, time to own up, right? I mean, God has got him, you know, backed into a corner. There's no, no alternative. Like, it's very clear. He's asked him a, a direct question. This is the problem. The problem wasn't that you were naked. The problem wasn't that you were scared that I was showing up. The problem is deeper than that. Here's the problem. Have you eaten of that tree? So, time for the man to own up. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Right? That's the, that's the first time… You know, no, it, it, this thing happened, right? God has him. God is addressing this very question. He knows exactly what happened. Adam knows exactly what happened. And yet Adam still has the gall to say, well, it was really her, right? Blames it on the woman. And so you've got, you've got a, a, an infection that's already made its way into the first marriage where you've got blaming going back and forth, right? And it still happens today. We blame one another right? That we, we find guilt in the other, and I would rather point out your guilt. I'd rather point out my wife's guilt. I'd rather, I'd rather address things that way and keep the attention off of me and, and focus somewhere else, right? Well, that, that happens, right? Not in the best of marriage moments, but in every marriage, it happens. But, but Adam's not done, really. He says, the woman <clears throat> whom you gave me, Truth be told, God, there's a problem here. And it's the gift that you gave me, this woman. Boy, did you mess up, God. I didn't, you didn't know what you were giving me. You didn't... You see how the blame has now shifted? It's not just... It's not adequate to, for him to, you know, no, it's really look at her, look at her. And He also says, and you have your own fault in this, God, because you're the one who gave her to me after all, right? The guts... <laughs> the guts that he had to be able to say that that he would that he would uh, address the guilt of the woman first and then even address the guilt of god first before he finally says and and i ate which is which is what he should have said the question was did you eat of that tree and the answer is i ate of that tree but he takes a while to get there doesn't he and so he he blames the woman And he blames God, and he blames, you know, the the only two people he has a relationship with. (laughs) There's no one else to blame. Like, he's run out of places, right? And he finally says, I ate. Right? And so you see, sin has already begun to work in the heart of man. That it wasn't just a, a, a piece of fruit. It wasn't just this particular act that now it's begun to seep in and affect even this relationship. Even his view of God Can you imagine? So that's the man's confession, and it's not really outstanding, is it? He does everything he can to get out of it. And finally, only very reluctantly at the end, after having blamed everyone else, does he finally say, I ate. So that's the man's confession. Nothing to write home about. The woman's confession comes in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The question is very strong and very clear. It's, what have you done? It's the kind of question that makes your legs sweat. I didn't really realize. <laughs> I didn't think it all the way through. I remember when I was 16, and I uh, took my, my brother who's four years younger than me, so he'd have been 12 and we, like, ran to town, which I lived 10 miles out of town, so it was a, you know, I drove to town and was gone for a couple hours. I have no idea what we were doing. And when we came home, of course, cell phones didn't exist, and, of course, I hadn't told my parents where we were going or that I was taking my, my brother with me. And we came back, and my dad sat me down. And when he walked into the room, I still remember that feeling of my legs sweating, right? My, him talking to me, and I was thinking, oh, what have I done? And he was asking, what have you done? I didn't know where you were. I didn't know where your brother was. I didn't know if you were in danger. I didn't know if you were in a ditch somewhere. You know the parents. You've given this talk, right? And all the the ones even who aren't parents have heard the talk, right? That's the talk and that's the tone. What have you done? Do you realize the consequences? So I imagine her legs were sweating. And so now certainly she's going to She's going to give the right answer, right? She's, she's not going to be like Adam, who <clears throat> first pointed this way and then pointed that way and, and finally, only very begrudgingly, gave up. Surely she will do the right thing, right? All the wives, if, if you didn't have your Bible in front of you, you'd be thinking, well, yeah, probably, right? No, of course not. The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. She finds someone else to blame. I mean, Adam had looked everywhere. Adam hadn't thought to blame the serpent. He he just blamed the other two people he knew. She turns and blames the serpent. She does the same exact thing that he does. And only then, after having blamed this serpent, he deceived me and I ate. Only then does she own up to it. So the blame gets shifted again. And so, just flashing forward into today's time, it shouldn't surprise us when we shift blame. It shouldn't surprise us when you see people doing this in their actions, in their words, whether it's in our own family or whether it's in public life or whether it's anywhere. It started very early, blame shifting. And so God asked her that question, what have you done? Not because he was hoping to learn information, but to bring her to a place where she would realize what she has done. So here are two sinners who are confronted by God's word, and it cuts right to the heart, and it goes right to the issue at hand. And what God is doing is calling them to confess their sin and not excuse themselves. They fail miserably. That's what He's calling them to do, and that's what God's word calls us to do also—to confess our sin, to own up to it, to not to excuse ourselves. God's word is like a it's like a sword it's sharp and it goes right to the heart and exposes our motives. And we sometimes read it really fast so that we won't feel that exposing of our motives part. Or we want to look at something different because we're trying to run from God. And so the application here is clear. That you too and I too need to confess our sins. That God's word penetrates and reveals We need to confess our sins to God. We need to take responsibility for our sins and not not shove it off on someone else. Not try and make the other person seem guilty. Not try and make someone else seem like they're really the the bad guy in this situation. Not me. Own up to your sin. Don't excuse yourself of your sin. Don't try to pass it off on others. There's, There's no forgiveness, no healing, no growth when you blame others for your sin. Own up to it. It's yours. And Adam and Eve finally, finally, finally got around to that. I ate. And so we see, first of all, that confession is essential. And secondly, in the next section here, we're going to see that consequences are inevitable. The consequences of their sin are inevitable. And so we see in this next passage here, verses 14 through 19, very familiar to all of us, and it's set out in a different uh, way in your Bible because it's, it, it's like, it reads like poetry and, it's, and, and whatnot. This is God declaring the punishments for sin and then the prospects for the sinners. He's, he's laying out what the consequences are going to be and what the prospects of their lives are going to be. He says, first of all, turning and addressing the serpent right away, which was the last one accused, right?, And he's the one that began this chapter, that serpent who is more crafty than any other beast, who comes in and he's talking to the woman. And he addresses this serpent, and in doing so, he points out that there is going to be a struggle now between good and evil. And it's a perpetual struggle. It hasn't always been, and there will be a conclusion to it. But until that conclusion in glory, there will be this struggle between good and evil. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now you'll notice, I'll pause there for a moment. He didn't question the serpent. He didn't say, serpent, what have you done? Serpent, where are you hiding? Serpent, why are you, uh, why are you doing this? He didn't question the serpent at all. And there are uh, a couple of reasons for that, but I think one of them, and I think the one that uh, uh, deserves our attention the most, is that the interrogation is for the purpose of repentance and redemption. It's not for God to find out information. He already knows all the information. His purpose for interrogating Adam and his purpose for interrogating Eve is ultimately to do with their redemption. Redemption. There will be no redemption for the serpent. There will be no redemption for the satanic force behind the serpent. He's not one who will be redeemed or for whom redemption is available. And so God moves on and and speaks to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between Your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want to notice uh, also that the serpent came in, he enticed the woman with promises of greatness. God's holding you down, Eve. Don't you know he's holding you down? There's something much better that you could have, but he's keeping you from it. It's something he wants to keep for himself. And if you had what he had, you would be like him. You would be wise. You would know good and evil. He's holding you down, Eve. He, he came with promises of grandeur. And I think we see that backed up. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but, but uh, Satan's name is never mentioned in this passage. But as we go through the course of the Bible, we see that this is an ongoing fight between the serpent of old, as Revelation will say, and between God Himself, that the serpent is Satan himself, or satanic forces behind the actual snake who was there. And this is a battle that's begun. And and Satan, uh, this serpent, this snake, this dragon will represent satanic forces all the way through Scripture. And we read a couple of different places in uh, the prophets that that are talking about judgment upon statements about these kings, the king of Tyre, king of Babylon, making statements about these kings that sound a lot like what's going on in Genesis chapter 3 and gives an idea that these, these kings were actually driven by satanic forces, representative of Satan, and so that words said about them can be applied to Satan. And I'll read a couple here. Ezekiel chapter 28, for example, starting at verse 13. Speaking of this king, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14 of that chapter, you were an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. What a special blessing. This is a description of this king, but beyond this king is the one who's driving this king, which is Satan himself, which I believe is the one represented here in Genesis chapter 3. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned talking about that king. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. You see, Satan had desires of grandeur himself he was the one thinking God is holding me down someone has a higher seat than I do and I want that seat and so he sought to replace God to displace God and in his effort to do so is when he drew in the man and the woman into his sin so he had desires of grandeur he had these, these plans of what he wanted to do and so going back to Genesis chapter 3 what's the curse that's placed upon him? Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all your days. You wanted grandeur. You wanted the highest place. You wanted the throne on top of the mountain of God. Instead, you're going to slither in the dirt all your days. And so the exact thing he was seeking is the thing that is most taken from him. But he continues and says that this woman that you brought down, this this woman that you tempted, that you uh, sought to bring low, yes, she's brought low, but she will have a seed, she will have a child. And you and her offspring will do battle perpetually until the time comes when one of her offspring will crush your head. You slithering around in the dirt, striking at his heel, he's going to step on your head, crush your head, though you got in a strike on the heel. And so this serpent who wanted great things, this Satan who uh, had his eye on God's throne, as it were, has his end confirmed by God. There will come a time when you will not sit on that throne. You will crawl on your belly until the seed of that woman crushes your skull. And you'll be done. You'll be ended. You'll be brought all the way low. And so his doom is sure. It's proclaimed in the beginning, which to the serpent was a curse. But we're not the serpent. And to us, it's a promise. It's a promise that this The sin that we're enduring, the consequences that we're enduring right now, there will be a time when we will be delivered from that. So there is abasement of the serpent himself because he sought greatness above his station. God assigned him the lowest, the most humiliating position, crawling on the ground, eating the dust until his head was crushed. And in those same words, we have redemption for the man. Redemption for, for mankind because the serpent sought to trip up the woman. The seed of the woman would be at perpetual enmity with the serpent and would ultimately crush his head. And so the enemy would be destroyed. And so we have, first of all, the, the, the statements made uh, to this serpent that there will be a, a, an ongoing struggle between good and evils. Uh, serpent, you have started the fight, and the seed of the woman will bring it to an end. And until that time, you are abased, you are low, crawling in the dirt, licking dust until your time of judgment. And so those are the statements that are made to the serpent right there. He moves to the statements made to the woman, that the woman will have pain and toil. To the woman, he said, in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children, You hear the the repeated word there, pain, pain, pain? All the moms are saying, yes, I hear and I remember. (laughs) Don't have to imagine, right? There's pain connected with it. That's a strong emphasis here that uh, the the primary uh, role in this relationship that the woman has, that she will be bearing children and it will be rough, it will be painful. And not just the birthing process. But parenting, the whole process is frustrating, it's difficult, it's hard work, it's painful. The woman's sphere will be hindered, made more painful, more frustrating. Something that's so desirable to her, something she so wants to do, and now there's difficulty mixed in with that. But he continues, and he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband or for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I... I want to go much more into this passage right here and and how to interpret it and and what it means, but because we're covering a large section, I, I want to just draw this conclusion that where there had been harmony in the marriage, there will now be a new tension causing difficulty causing frustration that there's th- th- this, this relationship that was glorious, the only two humans on earth living before God, and they were in harmony with one another, and they, they, they played their roles perfectly, and they related to one another perfectly, and there was, there was no frustration, there was no pain, and now there's pain, and now there's frustration. And it's part of the consequences to the woman. Now, notice that it didn't say that she was cursed. Only two things are cursed in this section. The serpent and the ground but not the man and the woman the curse is not upon them there is impact of the curse that affects them but they themselves are not cursed and so we see pain and toil for the woman and no surprise in verse 17 through 19 we see pain and toil for the man just in a different sphere verse 17 and to Adam he said because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you you shall not eat of it cursed it is the ground because of you In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here the man's sphere, remember he was created and placed in the garden to work it and keep it. He's He's to have a job. Your job will be frustrated now. It will be painful. It will cause sweat in a way it wouldn't before. It will cause difficulty. And and, and whereas you used to get to eat abundantly from the trees of the garden, now you're going to scratch a living out of the ground. And you're going to get thorns and thistles instead. Yeah, you'll get to eat. You will have bread. You will have provision. And it will be hard to get. Not like it was. And so you have pain and toil onto uh, the man as well in his sphere and the main uh, focus of his life. And so he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Death. Remember what the consequence for the sin was? The consequence for disobedience back in chapter 2 would be death. And he says, "By By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return." And so uh, we have a reversal. There had been abundance. There had been life. And now there's difficulty and frustration. And after a life, and Adam's life will be long, you will return to the dust. You will return to that place. And so There's a point of application here that we dare not skip before we go on. Some of you have never thought about this. Maybe never thought about this passage. Maybe, maybe have never thought about this topic. But if that's you, you need to recognize your sin for what it is. And you need to understand the consequences that come into your life from sin. It has very dire consequences before a holy God that God who created you is holy and He has standards and you have not met those standards. And some don't care. I want you to care. I want you to see and understand His standard and where you have fallen and understand the consequences in your own life. What what will you do as a sinful person before a holy God. Well, you'll try to run like Adam and Eve tried to run. But God will find you. And there will come a time when those consequences will be made clear. Your sin puts you in mortal danger. And, and some have never thought about that. Some have never come to that place where they've wondered with Eve, what have I done? So I want you to feel that. If you've never thought about that, I want you to ponder that for just a moment. And for those of us who have thought about those, those of us who are in Christ, have trusted Him, we still need to think about that. We still need to understand the, the gravity of what it means that God really is all the way holy, holier than we can imagine. And our sin is really detestable, more detestable than we can imagine, causes a greater degree of guilt than we could ever understand. We need to understand that Not so we can live there, Christian, but so we can realize what sin is, what sin does, what sin says about God. So we need to realize that the consequences of sin are inevitable, and that's what God spells out for the serpent and the woman and the man. But we we dare not end there, and He doesn't end there. The author moves on and we see that hope is available. Hope is available. That even in the midst of that, even after having proclaimed such such strong statements about sin, the consequences of sin, what will be the results in their lives after having cursed the ground and cursed the serpent and described the pain and the toil and the frustration of the man and the woman, we have God's gracious provision for believing sinners. First of all, how do we see that in this passage? You're thinking, I'm reading into it. Look at verse 20. We see, first of all, that life continues. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, if he was pondering two sixteen and 17, the commandment from God, the consequence of breaking it was, you shall surely die. And then after this conversation, after all the sin enters the picture and all this conversation, the next thing is recorded is that Adam names his wife and calls her the mother of the living. There's going to be life. That even though he understands there are consequences of sin, the consequence of sin is death. It's clearly spelled out in 2.16.17. And though we see the results in their lives, that Adam, you're going to return to the dust. That's what you're made from. You're going to go back to it. It's part of the result of the fall that this is what's going to happen. And you can even see death in the breaking down of their relationship with one another. That they would throw one another under the bus before God. That's a death. And you see death in their relationship with God that that when he shows up, rather than wanting to be with him, rather than wanting to bask in his presence and wanting to worship him, they want to run and hide. That's death. That's a breakdown in the relationship that though there has been so much evidence of death, though they've not died yet physically, though they will, When Adam names his wife, he calls her the mother of all the dead. No, the mother of living. All the living. There's going to be life. There will be life. We can look forward to life, not just tilling the ground, not just having babies, not just this life. There's, there's There's a sense here that points far beyond Genesis chapter 3. There will be life, probably reflecting back on. The seed of the woman. There's going to be a victory over this enemy. There will be life. And so he names her the mother of all living, an indication that life continues. But it goes on. There's an indication that shame is covered as well. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You remember when this first went down, they first realized they were naked, their eyes were open, and they became wise. Right? And so they made for themselves coverings, garments out of leaves, fashioned them for themselves. They covered themselves up as best they could because they're trying to hide their shame. They're trying to hide their guilt. They're trying to hide who they really are. They're hiding from each other. They're hiding from God. They're, they've got this shame. And verse 21, God himself makes for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. He covered their shame. We we dare not read past that too fast. It's not just, you know, a leather outfit or something. It's not just, you know, a fur coat that He made for them. He covered their shame. Now, they had done their best to do that. You know, they, they wove together or whatever they did. They sewed together. They fixed together some kind of garment. You know, they made kilts for themselves or whatever. I don't know. They, they did their best to, to solve their problem, and they failed miserably. Their shame was still evident. God comes, and He Himself clothes them. And notice what He clothes them with. Skins. Skins. He gives them new skins. He, he provides for them a covering For their shame that requires the death of another. And so we have the first sacrifice being made. Whether he killed the animal, whether they killed the animal, an animal was sacrificed, an animal gave up its life to create outfits for Adam and Eve. Here you you have this first evidence, this first idea of why sacrifices take place. And this concept of, of, of animal sacrifice, of course, is going to continue on through the rest of the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. This is, this is what's going on, right? You have this, this conception that there needs to be an animal put to death to pay the penalty for which I deserve to die. And you've got that picture that would have been ingrained in their minds. Well, it stems from right here. But ultimately, the problem wasn't that they were naked, was it? The problem wasn't their shame. That's a symptom. The problem is their sin. And so this points forward. God covering them, clothing them with with garments of skins, points forward to what will ultimately happen. Not, Not just the blood of bulls and goats, that points beyond itself as well to Christ Himself. The one who will come and stand in their place, who will bear the wrath of God that that is directed at them, at you, at me. That he will stand in that place and he will bear that. That he will provide his own skin as it were, his own life of obedience, his own righteousness to clothe us, which is language Paul uses in the New Testament. That we would be clothed in Christ. Our shame is taken away, our sin is dealt with. That we stand before God appropriately clad in Christ. And so we see that their shame is covered. Now here it's in a picture, it's in garments of skins that God made and clothed them, but it points forward to this idea that, well, but that doesn't deal ultimately with their shame. Only Christ can deal ultimately with our shame. Only Christ can deal ultimately with our guilt. But we stand before God with this terrible weight of guilt, this terrible weight of sin that we have before a holy God, and our sin is horrific. Horrific. The punishment we deserve is horrific. The consequence, not just shame. Shame is too small a word, not just guilt, not just punishment. Those are two small words. Absolute separation from God is what we deserve. Bearing His wrath for our sin, that's what we deserve. But here we've got this beautiful, beautiful picture of God providing the skins to take away our shame. in your own life, as you think about your own weight of sin, how are you going to deal with it? How do you care for it? How do you, how do you get it taken, taken away? The only way you can is not by weaving leaves together not by something of your own effort, something that you accomplished. It may, they might be really pretty leaves, maybe multicolored, and you did a really complex pattern, and it's really, you know, it's a, it's a, maybe you did a fabulous job. You need new skin. You need new clothing. You need to be clothed in Christ. And so this morning, my, my plea with you is to trust in Christ, and He will clothe you. And you will be like Adam and Eve, not just just wearing skins of animals, but you'll be clothed in Christ. You'll have peace with God. and You'll be appropriately clad to be in His court. So trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. You'll be clothed like Adam and Eve. We have three verses left. And this is is another moment of hope, though you have to You have to think about what we're talking about here for just a little bit. There's exile. Verses 22 through 24 talk about exile. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. By the way, you notice your Bible probably has two little dots or, or two little lines. God doesn't finish a sentence. He doesn't finish it. It's, it's, it's to draw us in. It's to cause us to say, what? 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 But He doesn't explain. He, he shows, right? Listen again to this sentence. He doesn't finish it. Now, lest He reach out His hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. There should be a second part coming. But He doesn't speak the words. He does the thing. 23, therefore the Lord God sent Him out From the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sounds awful. And it is. But it was a merciful awful. He drove them out lest they take of that tree of life and live forever in a fallen and unredeemable, irredeemable position in a way they couldn't be redeemed lest they be locked there, thank you lest they be locked in that place and, and be beyond redemption God mercifully kicked them out it was merciful to them you have this picture that the, the tree of life would have, would have done something to them would have made it so that they would have lived on in this state and he didn't want that because he's thinking ahead to redemption he wants to redeem them. He's protecting them. Just like the curtain that protected, kept everyone from going into the Holy of Holies. Well, it it, it, it created separation. It demonstrated the, the distance, the, the, the inability of a sinful man to enter into the holy presence of God. But why? Because sinful man entering into the holy presence of God is destroyed. And it's merciful. God was looking forward to when He was going to deal with this. He was looking forward to redemption to come, and so right now He wants to bar them from the tree of life in this condition. But the tree of life returns. The tree of life comes back in the future, and we see in Revelation chapter two and verse seven, for example. Paul is speaking. uh, I'm sorry. John is speaking to the uh, writing to the church in Ephesus. The Lord speaking. To the one who conquers, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It almost sounds like it's a kind of a metaphor, like, oh, you remember back in the paradise of God? Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, and there was that tree there, the tree of life. And and so it it, it might be like you get to go back and you get to partake of that, and, and, and it's a picture of tree of life, but it's not just a picture. He's talking about something bigger and better. He's talking about what will be. And so we see also in Revelation uh, chapter 22, verses 13 to 14, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Do you think he might have authority to grant entrance? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter into the city by the gates. There's the tree of life. Jesus says, I get to grant entrance. I get to grant people to partake of this tree of life. Remember when, when you got kicked out of the garden to keep you from the tree of life, I'm letting you back in. And how is that that we get let back in? He says, blessed are those who wash their robes. How do they wash their robes? How do we wash our robes? Christian, you've, you've gotten your robes dirty. Non-Christian, you've gotten your robes dirty. Your, your clothing, it's as if you've been bathing in the mud. It's as, as if you've been crawling around in the dirt with the serpent. A Christian is one who recognizes himself in Genesis 3 and not in a flattering way. I see myself there doing those things. We've sometimes been tricked by the enemy into sin. And we have often run willfully, headlong, heedlessly into sin. We see its fruits in our lives and in our relationships. We see the effects of sin. We see the harm that our sin has done. We see the separation that it's caused between between us and more importantly, between us and our Creator God. The Christian has seen his or her need to have our, our our shame covered and our guilt removed. That's what a Christian is. Someone who has recognized those things. We've recognized our dirty robes and have come to the one place where we can have them washed, to Jesus himself, who is the Alpha and the Omega. So that by faith in him, we have our robes washed. We receive new skin. We receive the clothing, a covering, the, the garments made of his His sacrifice, his life, his obedience, skins, as it were. The seed of the woman who has finally won the victory for us and given us life. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so if, if you don't recognize those things, my, I, I want you to recognize that this morning, your own guilt, your own place, and that Jesus says, I will wash your garments. You trust in me. That is the only way that we can have our clothes made clean. That's the only way that we can be clothed appropriately to be in God's presence is by faith in Christ and His finished work. And so Christian, I want us to think about this and rejoice in this. I want us to take sin seriously. I want us to repent of our sin. Recognize what it does. The, the, the destruction that it does. Recognize what God has paid in the face of it to, to redeem us from that. That we would be a repentant people that we would hate sin not think lightly of it that we would hate it because of who our God is and if you don't know Christ it's my desire that you would realize God's holiness and your guilt and that your legs would sweat that you would realize the position you're in, and that you would run to Christ who is the only one who can clothe you appropriately to be in God's presence, that you would trust in Christ. You would find your, the guilt of your sins removed, paid for in Him. The seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. And you would find His righteousness placed upon you so that you stand before God forgiven and righteous. You will have peace with God. So as we read Genesis chapter 3 and work through what all is here, I hope, I hope we placed ourselves in this passage or rather we saw this passage working itself out in our lives because this is the story of us. But don't, don't come away only thinking about ancient history. Don't come away only thinking about what might have been had sin not existed, or, or any of those things. But deal with what is here and with what God has revealed in your own heart. And find yourself, by faith in Christ, clothed in Him, in God's presence, joyful. And so when He calls, when he, you hear the sound of Him coming into the garden, you run to greet Him instead of running to hide. That's my desire for each of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful even to read these painful, dark, sharp, sometimes harsh words, but in them we also see your revelation of who you are, your revelation of who we are, and your revelation of how we can know you. Father, thank you that we can see Jesus in this passage. That we find hope in Him. And my prayer is this morning that each of us would behold You in, a, in a, a different light, that we would understand better Your holiness, Your power, Your position, Your righteousness, and that we owe all to You. That we would behold better our own need as a result of our sin and that we would thus rejoice all the more in Jesus our Savior, that we would go forth rejoicing, that we would rejoice to tell our families about Christ, that we would rejoice to uh, talk to kids and parents at VBS this week to tell them about Jesus, about this salvation, that uh, we would be desirous that others would behold you as we've beheld you, that they would see Christ and find redemption in Him as we have. So, Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Thank you that you already have this morning. I pray that you would work change in us. Thank you for Jesus, who is our Redeemer, who is the seed of the woman, who has crushed the head of the serpent, who is the one who gives life where there was only death, who is the one who replaces our shame with his own with his own righteousness. So, Father, we rejoice in Jesus. May we go forth in that joy and and draw others into it as best we can. May we show that forth. May we celebrate and rest in these truths. And may we take them to those around us, even this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to uh, uh, pray with the family, there'll be someone up here to pray with you and they love to do that. That's their ministry to you. If you have finished uh, filling out your blast zone and you want to go over here and be checked with Miss Brianna, you have that opportunity. Otherwise, God bless you all and go in Him. In Jesus' name, amen.